Welcome, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're visiting with Alligator Preserves. In today's episode, I'm going to introduce you to an amazing author and an amazing person, Manette Lauren. So stay tuned. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Manette, there you are. Hi. Well, welcome to Alligator Preserves. Oh, glad to be here. Would you please introduce yourself to our audience and tell them why you're famous? <laughs> oh, uh, I am Annette Lauren, and I am um, uh, living here in Texas with my menagerie of animals. And if I'm famous for anything, although I think that my writing's pretty good, I think that I'm probably famous for my parents. <laughs> I have 8,000 plus uh, followers on Twitter and 5,000 on Facebook, and I think that they're probably there for the animals. For your parrots? Yeah, I have three parrots, uh, five Almost six dogs because I have another dog that stays with us often and three turtles and a whole bunch of deer that I feed every morning and evening. Oh, my goodness. And so wh where can people find your, your Twitter to follow if, you, if they're parrot lovers? <laughs> Minette Lauren. Uh, the at sign, I think, Minette underscore Lauren. Yeah. Oh, and it's all right. A picture of me in Greece on the ocean and I've got my hands up looking at the Aegean and you can't really see my face because I usually don't like to. <laughs> I don't like pictures anymore. <laughs> Well, I don't know why that would be, but uh, parrots, oh my goodness, they're, they're, uh, they're chatty. They're, they're very chatty. Um, actually, the funny part is, is that I have a big blue and gold macaw. She's very big and very bright and very beautiful. And she's probably my least talker. She, she says some words, but I found later on that the, the Amazons don't say as much as say those smaller versions of like the African greys. And I have a little uh, Quaker parrot. He's a little tiny thing and he's not... So impressive because he's just like a little finch, not finch, maybe a more like a cardinal size. And he says everything. He says, hey, baby. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> so he thinks you're looking pretty fine. So you should, you should go with that. <laughs> We're going to talk about two books today. We're going to focus on one that you wrote called Race for the Sun. And then we'll spend a little bit of time, if we have some time, talking about Sins of the Sister, which you co-wrote. <laughs> and we'll get to that because just the whole idea of co-writing absolutely fascinates me. Oh, yeah. So Race for the Sun, the Soul Watchers series, book one. Yes. Um, I read in a previous interview you had that you were motivated or inspired for this book while you were driving to the hospital to visit your sister. Um, yeah. Why why this title, Race for the Sun? You know, titles are kind of really funny because they, they hit you at a moment and um, you're just kind of writing and you're like, oh, that's it. That's the, the title. Soledad is the, um, actually, Soledad means uh, Lady of Solitude, but Soledad is the guardian angel in this book. And there's also uh, another entity at the end of the book named Soleil, uh, like Sun. And she's named for Soledad. And so uh, this is a race about finding yourself. And it definitely, it's two women's journeys. Soledad has her journey as a, a guardian angel. And also Allie, who's the, the main character in the book, she's also finding what her life is about. And that doesn't necessarily mean soulmate for everybody, but just what their purpose is. So on the back of the book, I read, I read that this book combines romance, mystery, and suspense with a unique and refreshing take on the afterlife. Now, you have some pretty steamy scenes in this book. Uh, oh. and, and for that, I thank you. <laughs> <laughs> My friend said that. Uh, she was like, God, this is really, you know, hot. I'm like, really? I, I, didn't, I didn't think I'd put that much in there. <laughs> well, you've definitely got the romance tropes in there and those elements. But I think... This is how your story stands out from the traditional from traditional romance novels is the idea of the afterlife. How did you come up with the idea of soul watching? 
<laughs> well, it really was the drive to the hospital um, originally. And this is before I started the book. I mean, I don't even know if I started the book that year. It was just the idea for it, you know, came up and I was driving. My sister was hospitalized for quite a bit. So this went on for a long time. But as I was driving, and I, I guess I was looking out at like the, the pastures and the cows and the dogs, and I was thinking about really a totally different story. I was thinking about the thing that watches over all of us, a guardian angel that, and that maybe if you're not like the, you know, uh, proficient, or maybe you're not the most gifted guardian angel that you start off with the little things like the bunny rabbits and <laughs> the cows and the dogs. And, you know, maybe you, you make yourself a, a go on. And I, I was originally thinking about two sisters who had passed away and when they were on the other side, the, the world that they would live in. And I was actually going to write that story. And so um, I won't give too much away of that, but there, there's some of that that happens in book two. Oh, okay. All right. So another thing I think that makes yours different from typical romance is your writing. I mean, a line I remember is you talk about the lives in between were like winters of the soul. I mean, you have, you have beautiful, beautiful writing in there. You have lyrical writing in there. On page 139, I just want to read this. Reincarnation could grant life in any form of embodiment. A soul had little influence in choosing its sex or race, but the light within each embodied spirit was the same energy throughout time. The essence of the soul's existence was strangely always the same. And mm -hmm. so I would like to hear about your own belief. Do you believe in reincarnation? Yes, I, I do. Um, the funny part is, is that I've believed that since I, before I really knew what religion was, and I don't really think about it as religion, I think about it as spirituality. And I do believe that that can coexist with whatever other religion, you know, if you believe in Christianity, whatever, you can believe in all of the, the same things together. I think they can coincide. Uh, and I don't want to touch religion here at all. But I, since I was. Oh, you can. You can touch whatever you want in this interview. I, I'm one of these very non political, I, you know, I, I don't want to stir things up kind of person. I, I'm a Libra. I hate to, I hate to argue. But one of the things that when I was very little is I just, I just knew, I just knew that, you know, this is one life and that when we pass, well, you know, when my great grandmother passed away, she was the first person. And I just knew it's like, oh, yeah, I'll see her again. You know, she'll, she'll be back. And this was just my understanding of how the word world worked. And no one, told me that it was just sort of an inner feeling and as i've grown older i've had some very specific dreams uh, i i know i have a, a vivid imagination i'm a writer but i've had some very vivid dreams about reincarnation where i've seen myself as a man in like 1400 something you know wearing pantaloons and stockings and i'm looking out at the world i can't see my reflection you know and i've i've just seen myself in too many situations and I've felt too much deja vu that in my heart, I just feel like that's the way things work. When I talk about that we're reincarnated and we kind of have that same sense of spirit and spirituality or energy is that I think that sometimes, you know, you, I kind of have a feminine and a masculine presence in this life. I'm a strong woman. My mom brought us up to be strong women, all of us girls. And I can take on a lot. And I've always felt like I could, if I have to, I can stand up for myself or stand up for the people that I love. And, you know, I could be a fighter. I don't want to be, but I can be. So I think I have a balance of that masculine and feminine energy that, that makes me probably good at both roles. And so I think I probably have lived a man's life or a woman's life. Um, and I think in all our energies, we correspond with each other in a way that's balanced. My husband now, I, I call him my soulmate because he's just... He's such a great energy and he's a masculine, you know, kind of person, but yet he loves, you know, poetry and science. He's, he's really well-rounded. And I think that it's about finding that right energy to fit with others. And so when I talk about that winner of the soul, it's not just not finding your soulmate or not being with that perfect person. It's, it's, it's that being away from all the things that you love. Because when you think about your energy leaving this life, uh, and I'm not a huge guru. I don't read a whole lot about reincarnation, oddly enough. I think that it's that, that thing of being alone. When I was 22, I think I had a surgery for my ear and they had a hard time waking me up. And I remember being awake and standing outside my body. Now, it could be drugs. It could be that, you know, you're, you're under that sedation or whatever. People can explain it any way they want. But I really feel like I was standing outside my body trying to figure out how to get back in. There was nothing else I saw besides what was really here. And the idea of being trapped outside 
away from this world and the people I love was very scary. Did you ask after the fact if they were close to losing you or I'm sure they wouldn't tell you the truth? I, well, that's probably what I was thinking at the time. I was very young. Like I said, I was like 22, 23. So I, I was very uh, afraid by it. And also I didn't, I probably didn't talk about things quite as openly then people think you're crazy. <laughs> so I just knew that I had, I had been outside. I knew I'd seen, you know, my husband at the time and my best friend sitting there waiting for me and they had their, the drinks that I had requested because I get really thirsty after that sort of anesthesia thing. But I do believe, um, I do believe, and that's part of what started Race for the Sun. And in the, this book kind of reflects some of the tensions that I have with my own very real sister who she had type 1 diabetes. I'm probably jumping ahead here. No, that's um, okay. But it made me think a lot about life and death because I knew that, I knew at the time I wasn't losing her. It was a few years that I started this book, you know, and then she had about two or three years that she she lived after that. And, but it made me think a lot about what happens after we die and what are we really here for? And another way that this isn't a typical romance novel, although there's a lot of romantic features in it, is that the heroine doesn't have just the right guy standing there waiting. She goes through several guys, you know, during this book, which is not very typical. Usually the woman, the, you know, the heroine meets the hero and he sweeps her off her feet. There's no other guy in the world for her, you know. There is. There's, there's somebody for all of us and maybe multiple people. And it's a real fantasy for women, you know, three guys. <laughs> <laughs> and one's younger, <laughs> which weirdly enough, that's not my fantasy. I, I really don't have a thing for younger men. I actually, my husband's 11, year old, 11 years older than I am. And I really like that. <laughs> three hot guys. It, it, it really, it made it fun. It, it, so you obviously have a good sense of humor. Um, but back to the idea <laughs> of having different energies, female, male, I'm trying to remember, I, I think the a book I read was called Brain Sex, something like that. And it talked about the fact that we are all on the, the spectrum between complete femininity and complete masculinity yeah. and somewhere in between. And it, and it makes perfect sense because we are, we're a mixture of so much previous DNA and energy. Yeah. Well, and that, that's another thing I can, I, I thought I read about cellular theory one time. I thought really that could really blow my idea of reincarnation out of the water because cellular theory is about that you're carrying all the things that your grandparents, your parents, your grandparents, your great grandparents, all of their memories up to the time of each conception from what I understand. So I thought, well, technically that's why people would fall down, bump their head and wake up speaking fluent German, you know, because they remember not the past lives that they have, but the past lives of their great grandparents or great great grandparents. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, on page one sixty nine, uh, there's a line in there that says, "All humans have the capability to see the future." And so, do you believe this? Are there parts of our brain that we just haven't figured out how to tap into yet? Well, they, they say that there's definitely lots of our parts of our brain or a big part of our brain. We don't really know what it does. Um, I'm sure they know more now, but I remember at one time them saying that we only know what 15% does. We probably know more than that amount now, but I'm sure there is a, a place in the brain that can, if nothing else, I think that the dreams that we have are sometimes premonitory. And I believe myself that not all dreams come true and not all dreams have to mean something, but for myself, they do. And even my little sister who has special needs is woken up and told me about a dream and I can tell that she's got a little bit of a, a sense of things to come. Maybe it's our own part of our, the part of our brain that says, okay, this has happened. Plus this has happened minus that happening. And then they can predict. So maybe it's not necessarily foreseeing the future as so much as just seeing events and being able to predict what comes next, like a, a mathematical equation. Where does karma fit into all this? Cause I, I'm a believer in karma. I'm a believer I that am. you put I am. I'm wearing my, I'm wearing my, my Greek eye. <laughs> I always wear that. And it, it always reminds me to be very kind to others and to think about others because I do believe that it comes back to you. I, I used to have, I still do. When I go to a hotel, I always leave money for the maid. <laughs> and I always, you know, I've gone downstairs like with my luggage almost forgotten and been like, oh my gosh, I have to go back up. And then I don't have my key. I've already turned it in. So I have to make a little envelope and leave it for the, the maid because, you know, I feel like that kind of energy, putting good energy out there begets good energy. And I, I feel the same thing about bad energy. I had a, a moment one time where um, 
had a little wiener dog and he had had a surgery and unfortunately he passed away that day. Uh, but I was going to the pet store and I wasn't thinking in my right mind. I had to go get something for him, uh, like some little diaper pad things for him. And I parked so close to the car next to me that the people couldn't get in, I guess. And I, I wasn't thinking right. I was only in the store for a minute. But when I came back, the lady was so mean. She was screaming at me and she had her husband and her kid with her. And I was so angry. I just, I, it shocked me. So I, I went to, to go drive away. And when I drove away, I was so angry. I rolled out my window and I just, I said the meanest things I could ever think of. And I was just so, you know, mad that she would be that mad about my dog was dying. And sure enough, when I got home, my, my dog passed away. And I felt like at that moment, I'm like, see, you did that. You put that energy out there. Even though she was giving you bad energy, you put that super bad energy out there and it came back. And so I'm very conscientious of the things that we do. And speaking of dreams, I mean, I've dreamed about being like a pilot in World War II, you know, you know, I've also seen myself like where there was bombs blowing up or whatever. So I, I know that I think if you spend one life hating someone, you're sure to come back on the other side the next time to learn what that side's about. That's interesting. And I'll say that we do have to cut ourselves some breaks every once in a while because we are human. And there are those emotions that sometimes we just have to let out. But I know what you're saying about the, the negative energy and coming back negative. I mean, if someone says neg something negative to you, someone criticizes you, the first thing that happens is that your neck hairs stand up and you get defensive. <laughs> yeah. You don't sometimes it's hard to listen to criticism, but sometimes there's, there's something to it. Um, I had a friend just recently, she was a beta reader for this novel that I just finished. And she was so worried. She's like, well, you know, I don't want to say anything. I'm just like, this is the time. I want you to hurt my feelings. I want you to tell me everything that you hate about this book, everything that you really like about this book and what you think that this book is missing. And she did. And then she was so worried. And I'm like, oh, I love it. Your points were really great. I'm going to pay attention to all of these things. I think they're valid points. And she was, she was like, I love this. I love being able to read and tell somebody what I really think about it. And I'm like, well, trust me, you're not doing any favors if you don't. Right. And, and that's a difficult thing for us to do sometimes because we have that fear that if I'm honest, you won't like me. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, I, yeah. I, I know I talk about, uh, of course, the reincarnation, of course, the astrological sign thing a lot. I do. I, I don't read a lot about that either, but I have noticed a correlation over the years of meeting people and saying, you know, when's your birthday? And then noticing those personalities kind of correlate with you know each one. And I always say that I'm Libra, so I can't make a decision. And I hate for anyone to not like me. <laughs> Life has to be fair. <laughs> Why isn't it fair? It's not. I'm, I'm sorry. It just <laughs> isn't. Maybe we'll find out later. So, Soul Watchers, you had to create rules for them. Yes. How did you come up with your rules for what a Soul Watcher could do and couldn't do? I think it was just part of the story as I was writing. I'm a pantser. Oh, gosh. Uh, Me so, too. <laughs> so as I write things, you know how it goes. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't do that. <laughs> and then later on, I have to remember what the rules are. That's the hard part to make sure that I don't overstep them. And there were there were a couple parts. We have. I don't have just one editor. Uh, I see probably three editors before the book's done. And you know, she's she was very specific. And now you need to watch yourself here because. This is your world and people, your world has to be believable. And if you get outside of that realm where it's unbelievable, then people won't keep continuing to read your story. And so um, I did, I had to clean up a little, a little part where it wasn't really that it, I was going against my own rules, but I was being too vague. And I, I thought that the vague was kind of chic, but she's like, no, <laughs> you got to give the answers and you have to explain this. So there, you set up some boundaries also, and there's an idea that if Soledad doesn't follow the rules, there could be punishments, repercussions. What would those repercussions be if she didn't follow the rules, if she broke some of the rules? Well, uh, the one rule that she didn't follow in a life is she's not supposed to send out energy to help people that it's not part of her assignment. So uh, in a long time ago, uh, before this story begins, she had made that mistake and she had more or less chanted to a woman who uh, was on the banks of the river and she was getting ready to drown her child. Find out more about that story actually in book two, uh, it's mentioned. So, uh, but anyway, she, she had whispered, saved the child, and then because of that, she was sentenced for many lifetimes without her soulmate. And sometimes you can see your soulmate in the non-physical form or the, the physical form. 
But that's, of course, what you, you want the most is to be able to have time spent with the person that you feel most partnered with for her. Uh, as I mentioned, that's not everybody. Some people, you know, uh, this is actually another editor of mine who pointed out, not everybody wants to find their soulmate or other people like, yes, you're right. <laughs> so uh, other people might want to just find their completeness in helping others like Mother Teresa or Gandhi or, you know, that sort of thing. So there were times in the novel when Soledad loses consciousness. Now, Yes. Remember, readers, Soledad is a spirit. <laughs> so, she, there's some, some jumping around where she 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 doesn't know where these blocks of time go. Sometimes, sometimes she she just disappears or fades out, and she doesn't really know where she's been until she fades back in. And do we know who or what decides when that's going to happen? No, do we don't know? explain that in the book. I, I guess I know. Um, Alakeen. Alakeen is her spirit guide, and he's the one who watches to make sure that she's still staying on track. Because as uh, Ali has her guardian angel, Soledad has a director. He's kind of her boss, and you know he's the one who keeps watch and sees that she's going in the right direction. And we all have that same energy. So whether you have a physical form that has a heart, or you have a spiritual form with no body you still have those desires because that's what's inside your spirit. So Soledad actually desires for soulmate. And that is a little bit of her, I guess, the, the thing she can't have in the this, in this story, you know, the thing that she's, she's supposed to be helping Allie and not focused on her own goals. And she chooses, she chooses Allie. She has several options of who she could be a soul watcher for. And so that, how you explain that was, was pretty interesting to her whole thought process of who am I going to soul watch? We are visiting with Minette Lauren, author of Race for the Sun. You play with names a bit, yes. right? I mean, so Soledad, you talked before about what that... Well, Soledad was chosen originally because I have a friend who has a sister named Soledad. I thought, that's such a cool name. <laughs> I want to use that. But it, it took up some meaning as the book went on. And even the fact that we're talking about souls here. Yes, spelled differently. True. But still the same. Even even the name Allie. Did you think about that name? No, Allie was just a name that came to me, uh, kind of like Travis. Travis sounded like a southern name in Austin, and of course, there's Lake Travis, you know. Uh, and I wrote a lot of this story back and forth. Sometimes I was in Louisiana in the hospital with my sister. Other times, you know, I was at my cabin up in Austin. So that whole cabin scene that's or the, the place that she lives is. It's not my cabin because my cabin's not quite so chic, <laughs> but it's it's where my thoughts came from. Actually, uh, subsequently talking about the other book, Sins of the Sister, there, the evil he has uh, a cabin by the lake as well. So that area has brought a lot of significance to my writing. Cabins by lakes can be either peaceful and lovely or really, really creepy and scary. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's that's exactly um, what I was thinking. It was kind of diverse, and the 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 picture I paint for Allie's cabin is a little bit I don't know, a little bit more like said nicer. It's country. She's got a little bit more property, you know. Uh, but I ride my motorcycle out by the lake a lot, and that part was a big part of Allie too. Um, I go down the fourteen thirty one there. It's really windy, and it goes out to Lago Vista and beyond, and that's a lot of fun for me. And I. I, I'm a very feminine kind of girl, I think, you know, but the motorcycles have this sort of masculine personality. And I wanted to bring that to my my, my character because she is feminine. She's an artist. She really enjoys uh, the outdoors. And I wanted to reflect that in someone that maybe readers would get a different idea about it because it's very liberating. It's a, it's a very fun sport. You did. So I, I learned that you're a Harley rider and also a, <laughs> a skier. And, and you talk about the picture that you paint. Do you paint? Because Allie, Allie the character, is a painter. And you're obviously really knowledgeable about painting. No. <laughs> you know, all, anything I wrote when I was, uh, I had to look up some things. Google is my friend, and I hope Google's right. <laughs> I, have, I have dabbled with some some watercolors at one point, and I, I sketched in high school Um I actually, when I was in high school, I won like a national award for uh, a mad campaign. I drew a, it was advertising art class. So I drew a, a little end of a, you know, one of those beds, medical ER beds. And I put the toes up and a little tag on the toes, a DOA. And I made it for like a, you know, a billboard. 
I don't know if it ever made a billboard. I've seen several like it since, but I used to like to sketch and I just don't have time. I would love to be able to do more things like that, but I have a guitar and it's sitting up there, you know, uh, getting dust on it. <laughs> and I've learned how to play a few little notes, but um, I have big aspirations for all the things I want to do and just not enough time to do them all. Are you putting that out there to the universe for your next lifetime? Maybe that would be great. I would, I would love to have the ability to play a musical instrument. I have a friend and he plays the guitar and sounds just like James Taylor, maybe better than James Taylor. I think he's amazing. And I've always been envious, not because of his, his skill, because I like hearing him, but I think when I'm 80, what am I going to do with myself? I'm not a crocheter. I don't like to knit. <laughs> so playing the guitar seems like a, a really nice pastime. And my birds, they love it. No matter how bad I sing, no matter how bad I play, they love hearing it. Just don't worry about how good you are. Just have the best audience you can have. <laughs> there, yes, there you go. I love that. So which character do you re relate to the most? Oh, well, I guess, I guess I'm half Soledad and half Ali. I'm really both. There's a part of me that can be a little, you know, why do I get out of bed in the morning and make the bed? I just got to get up and do it again. I mean, I've been that, I've been there in my life before where I had moments of why am I making this up or why am I doing this? I'm just doing the same thing every day. I'm really good at breaking out of that mode though. I do believe that there's good energy for all of us to find. And I know that as soon as I'm out of this form, I'll be looking for that next time to find that perfect energy because that's what makes me happy. My my co-writer has asked me that before, like, which of our characters out of all of our books do you identify with? And uh, you haven't read Daisy Dukes and Howie Boots, that was our first book, but I always say probably Nolan because he's, you know, a lawyer and he's a good guy and he wants justice to be done. No matter, you know, he's going to talk to the bad guy and he's going to find out exactly his side, his whole real side. And he's going to talk to the, the girl that he's kind of fascinated with and he's going to listen to her side too, but he's not going to give her just anything. He's going to do what's fair. Uh, there's a scene on page 114 that is so poignant where the sister Jess finally breaks down. And so the, the, the dynamic between the sisters is tense, to, to say the least. And then we go on and you talk about the pizza party and the friends who came bringing pizza, which is yeah. so not what she needed. And yeah. just the idea of, these are my words, fickle friends, fickle pizza party friends. Uh, it, it was so relatable, so real. And oftentimes throughout the book, I, I heard kind of a, a mother voice, if I could say yeah. that. You know, I'm a little mothering, yeah. <laughs> at, at times, she, she's allowing her sister to make poor decisions. Uh, I got some feedback from my editor about some of Allie's uh, dialogue and some of Allie's anger that it didn't seem realistic. And I had to kind of laugh because I'm like, well... <laughs> <laughs> it was real dialogue. Some of it was, you know, the, the sister here, Jess, she kind of gets, she's, she's formed from my sister who passed away. We were very total opposites. We did love each other. We really did. And I think that Allie and Jess in the story, you know, that, you know, they really do love each other, but I probably painted the most uh, selfish form of my sibling and Jess, uh, although Jess is not really her, but there were a lot of things that did happen. And Part of that thing about, you know, the bacon, egg and cheese biscuit, that was a real conversation we had. I was there in New Jersey and I was going to see about giving, donating my kidney. And that, you know, my sister asked me to pull through McDonald's. She ordered the bacon, egg and cheese biscuit and, you know, she was still smoking and, you know, there was just so much going on. And I was so frustrated because here I was trying to, to learn more about it and wanting to do the right thing, but it's hard to want to give a part of yourself when you feel like you're really just going to throw it away. You know, I, I felt like she was so unhealthy at the time. I don't feel like she would have made the, the surgery if she had done it. And there was a doctor at the time who actually did tell her that she would have been a vegetable if she had the, the surgery. And it was a heartbreaking because she really did have a different view of things. She was in denial and she really felt like, um, because I'd always been there for, and I would always do anything for anybody in my family. I think she thought, you know, for sure, I was just going to jump on the table and say, Hey, you know, I'm ready. Let's do this. And I have a very, I have a very active life. I like to ski, I like motorcycle, I like to do all these things. And that desperately would have changed my life at the time. So some of these conversations um, that I had in this book were therapy for me because I kind of was working through some of that anger that I had. 
anger with her because she didn't do the things she needed to do to be healthier. But the truth of the matter is, is that you never know. I mean, she could have done everything perfect. And still with type 1 diabetes, you know, you only have so many years in the bank. And so maybe she was doing exactly what you should do. Live life, do what you want, you know, and go out with a bank. Yeah. So that, that mother voice, you squelched it well. And you, you talk about giving a part of yourself, literally, literally, yeah. Yeah. Both, both in your actual life and, and in the book. And I thought those situations were, were very real. So not only giving a part of your physical self, but also giving of yourself emotionally throughout the whole thing, yeah. which was very, very compelling. It was, it was, it was great to do a mixture because truly like the characters in this book, because some things were real about my life. My friends would come up to me and say, Oh my gosh, did you meet a Louie? I'm like, no, (laughs) he's not real. But you know, the things between me and my sister were real enough that my friends knew it, that they just thought that the whole story was real. I'm like, even Jess really isn't my sister, but there are elements that I drew from our lives to put in that, that story. And uh, I think that I was very passionate about it and that it definitely helped me to write it. And now I feel like I've put that one aside so that I can go on to the next one and write the one I was originally thinking that has a lot to do with the same concepts, but not the same characters. Yeah, I would say that questions of identity also set this apart from your typical romance mystery. I mean, this has some deep stuff in it. It really, it, it really does. Do you question your own identity? Um, no, I think I really know who I am. I think that I was one of these people who I didn't, I didn't have kids by choice. I have lots of animals and I kind of partied a lot in my, you know, twenties and thirties. I I lived life like a rock star. And I think that I found a deeper part of myself after I got that out of the way. (laughs) I think that nobody's the same person maybe all their I think they're always the same energy but I think that throughout your life you're going to discover different facets of yourself and I remember when I was younger you know and I I wanted to to be a supermodel and actually I went to a palm reader when I was 16 and he told me that my name would be a household name that I would be famous he saw my name you know like on the tv or something you know and I thought oh great I'll be an actress I'll be a model you know it's so focused on the outside of what this is. And I'm not saying I was never a deep thinker. I think I was. But I think that because of society and magazines and what they tell teenage girls they need to be, that's what I thought I needed to be. And by the time I was in my 20s, I was doing this Hawaiian Tropic and I did some magazine cover stuff. And, you know, and that made me happy at the time. I'm pretty shallow now when I think about it. But, you know, it, it was a part of my life. And it actually gave me part of those experiences that I needed to get to the place that I am now. And The place that I am now is really, there's a part in the book where I discuss about what she finds in value, like the ring that you have today is going to be someone else's when you're dead. The house that you covet and you love every little piece of it, you know, that's going to be someone else's. They're going to sell that when you're gone. The idea of stuff. You talk about all the material stuff in the world is just material stuff. And I didn't know that until maybe just this decade. (laughs) I think that I finally got a grasp on that and thought, you know what? That's right. I, I'm not going to own all this stuff. And the only thing I'm going to be able to take with me when I go is the fact that I have a, a wonderful husband and a mother who I adore and my, my sister that I still have. I have a special needs sister I see every week and my friends that I love and I can't wait to see them. That Those, those relationships are the only thing that you're going to be able to take with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hearing birds chirping in the background. I, I live in Leadville. Those, are, those belong to the trees outside. Those I'm right from my office, um, this is not my office. Uh, I don't have an office, actually. I'm kind of one of those free spirits who love to write outside. So I'm writing in my patio room with all my birdie stuff behind me. I think you see the birdie swing, and there's some birdie trees over here. And they usually hang out with me when I'm writing, so I don't mind bird noises. But no. one time I did a recording, I could hear all the little birdies behind me. No, I, I love hearing them because, again, if, if as you know, I live in Leadville, and it I think it finally stopped snowing here. You said you posted a picture, and I was like, "Really? I can't believe really? that. it was like a blizzard." We're we're way up in the Rocky Mountains, ten thousand feet, and so just the other day, I started hearing bird noises in the morning, and it was very exciting because I think that means that spring is finally here. I, and it, my husband said the other day, "He goes, honey, they're got skiing again this weekend. You want to go?" I'm like, "There's no way we can go right now. It's probably not the best skiing in the world because I don't know what kind of snowfall you're getting there, but 
it'll be pretty icky. Let me just tell you that. No, you you don't you don't want to ski. I've never weekend. had a bad ski trip. Let me tell you that right now. Uh, <laughs> all right. She gets. I've never had a bad ski trip. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So back to the idea of changing and realizing what's important in life. Uh, they tell authors, and here's here's an author tip for you, a writer tip for you. Yeah, you know, I'm ready. Your your character. Well, you already know this. There has to be a character arc, right? The character has to change some way, has to evolve some way. And you do that in your book. And so the idea of us as real people having to evolve and realize, recognize some things that need to change, doesn't that make perfect sense? Shouldn't we yeah. all expect that we would have a character arc ourselves personally? <laughs> We, we should. And if we're not, we're, we're not growing. And um, I try to be aware of that. I, I, I wasn't always aware of that. Like I said before, I was kind of a, I don't want to say I was a late bloomer because I was actually kind of an early bloomer. I was a little bit, you know, ahead of my time. But then I was kind of behind my time because I was a little shallow how. But, you know, I, I did. I made that arc. And I think that I've evolved into something um, that's more thoughtful and a little better and a little self, a little bit more selfless. Don't get me wrong. I, I want to, I want to published and I want to write and I want to have all that time to myself. But right now, actually, my writing has kind of been uh, put on hold for a second book. Don't worry, it's eventually going to come out. But, um, you know, my mom's been a little sick and we have some other family things that we have to, to do. And for me, family always comes first. I love my writing, but uh, it's, it's kind of like this. It's family, animals, and then my writing. And I, I love writing more than anything in the world, but I feel like that's kind of my selfish thing. I, I want to make sure that everything else is good because when I'm laying on my deathbed, I won't care about, Ooh, I've got all my novels with me. Um, I'm going to care about, Hey, where's mom or where's, you know, whoever and, and how are they? And you know, everything's okay. Life happens and life is more important. Although your comment about being on your deathbed, <laughs> I did, I did honestly feel like I need to finish my water white trilogy before I die. And, and I actually, because I was, I had some travel coming up and I'm thinking, I hope I make it. Hope I make it back. Got to finish my trilogy. Great <laughs> of flying. It's not, not really. Not really. But I, you know. I am. I, that thing about Allie being on the plane right. and you know, that that's me. It doesn't matter. When we got married, my husband decided to treat us to the whole, we're flying to Greece and we're going to do it first class. And they served the caviar and, you know, they had the beds that laid down and it was super nice. But at the end, I told him, I said, sweetheart, you can put me back in coach. It doesn't matter how high up I am and how nice everything is. I'm terrified for every moment I'm up here. <laughs> Would you read a passage from your novel? Do yes. You, do you have a favorite I, one picked up? And I we, want to read a really short one. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That's fine. You are visiting. We are visiting. I am visiting with Minette Lauren, author of Race for the Sun, and she's going to read a passage for us. Yes. Um, I am one of these people who I just never really cared for reading so much out loud because I had a first grade teacher who was, uh, she just loved to pull me out and to, to kind of make fun of me because I was a, a late starter. I had a repeat first grade. That was a secret I never told anybody until recently. I just, I started early. I was only five and I turned six after this, the school year started. And I had a, a teacher who wasn't so nice to me and it traumatized me for the rest of my life about reading aloud. <laughs> that, makes me, that makes me sad. As a former teacher myself, that makes me sad. Well, um, you know, she she probably was six. She actually died in the middle of the year. Now we can go back to karma. No, that's it. She didn't deserve that. <laughs> but um, it was a very traumatic thing for, uh, I think, a first grader. And so anyway, I, I learned a lot in my first grade years. We could spend another whole show on that about, you know, things you realize when you're little that are right and, you know, how you get to that point of realizing it. But anyway, so this is basically Allie. This starts off, Allie is at her gallery showing in New York, and she's already had a, a little bit of a a relationship with Travis, but things kind of went awry. And uh, she's met this new guy. She got off the plane and she gave him a ticket to come to her art gallery showing. And her her partner for the business is uh, Marcel and he loves a good looking man. So this is where it starts. Allie was starting to feel like she was on a reality television show with all the skeletons in her closet falling at her feet. Allie internally sighed with relief. Travis hadn't seen the portrait yet, which many also had encountered Marcel. Now, how would she distract him and get him out of there before Louis answered? Oh, it was too late. She saw people gathering at the outskirts of their small circle, gawking at Travis's likeness to the painting. Marcel could be heard from a mile away as he spotted Allie. She cringed. Here goes nothing. Darling, you didn't tell me David was coming, you little devil, trying to hoard them all for yourself. He snapped his fingers in the air, appearing not to know which man to devour first. 
His eyes glinted playfully. Call dibs quick before I did them both. Allie tried to ignore the rush of heat climbing from her shoulders to her cheeks. Both men looked confused and wary of Marcel's proclamation. Marcel, this is Travis, and you remember Louis from the airport. Allie tried to cover her discomfort by taking a long sip of her champagne. Travis, hmm, well, I like David better. Mind if I call you David? Marcel batted his eyes and linked his arms with Travis playfully. Allie almost sprayed her champagne onto the floor when she saw Travis's blank look. She could tell he was uncomfortable but trying to be polite. He didn't know the dynamics of the group at hand, and his eyes pleaded with Allie to save him. She let Marcel whisk him off to the room where David was displayed. If she was uncomfortable at his sudden appearance, then he could be uncomfortable with Marcel. She hated that the gig was up, and now Travis would know exactly how he had plagued her sleep. Louis cleared his throat, then let out a small laugh. I fear your Travis is in for two surprises. He tipped his glass towards the departing duo. Allie giggled, a little too hysterically. Maybe she should cut herself off. Yes, it was definitely one too many. And it wasn't the champagne she was referring to. <laughs> one too many. So I'm not, I get nervous. My palms get sweaty. I, I don't ever mind talking, but I hate reading. <laughs> You're not in first grade anymore. But you know what? It's so true. Who? How many people out there can say, oh, I loved getting up and speaking in front of my peers when you're younger. You don't. Yeah. That's a skill that takes a lot of practice. And well, no, I, was a, I was a ham when I was little, like when I was in high school and we had uh, to do the, I think mine was um, Catherine the Great. So everybody else just went to school and gave their, their presentation. I dressed up as Catherine the Great <laughs> and I went in these big skirts and gave this whole thing about how many men I'd slept with. And we were like ninth grade. I don't know. <laughs> so my, my teacher was, I think felt fell over. She was, you know, but very impressed. And uh, I never have minded speaking in public if I knew what I was going to say. It just, I hate reading because I, I know I'm going to flub up. I, the, the fear of flubbing up, I will usually flub up. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not your words. You can ad lib, you can act, you can be yourself yeah. or someone else. But if you have to read a script, that's someone else's words. So I can see how, you know, you don't want, you don't want to mess up. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm always rambling on. <laughs> Manette Lauren, author of Race for the Sun, has also co-wrote yes. the book Sins of the Sister. And the your your author name, your co-writer author name is Zari Reed. This is and I'm I'm a little more than halfway through with this, okay? Oh, I'm honored because I, I sent you that book because I wanted you to see the, just something else uh, exciting, but that's very nice that you're reading that one too. This is a psycho killer thriller. <laughs> that's that's how I would say it. And I'm, I'm halfway through and it's riveting. First of all, I want to know the technically, how do you co-write? I mean, I know it's not every other word and I know it's not you share no. every other sentence. How do you co-write? What does that even mean? Well, it was it was an accident, really, uh, and it has to do with sins of or the race for the sun. Um, I was writing on race for the sun and sitting next to my sister in her hospital room, and my my very good friend Zoe Tazia, she uh, was texting me. You know, we were writers; we don't talk on the phone. We text. What are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm finally like, you know, I think I was twenty thousand words into my my book, and I'm like, I'm twenty thousand words in. I this is a really great story. I really I know I'm going to finish this one. I know this is going to be the one. And she's like, oh, I'm so jealous, you know, I, 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 my boys went off to school, I just, I don't really have any motivation to write, and I just recently found out that she was a writer, too. We had been friends for years, I didn't know. I said, I'm going to just open up a file real quick, I'm going to write down a paragraph, send it to you, and then you send it back to me, we'll do like a little exercise until you feel more motivated. It took me three days to get her to respond, and I could say, play my game, play my game, play my game, it'll be fun, you know? And it was so much fun, we finished our first book in four months. And we started on the next one. We didn't even try to send that one off, although we, we just knew it would be published. It was. We started on Blink, which was our second novel. And we were editing Daisy Dukes at the time that we were writing on Blink. And then by the time we got done with Blink, and Blink is, I think, an amazing book. It's a fantasy book. But it's so out of my comfort zone. I'm not a fantasy writer, generally, or reader. I wasn't. I, now I, I actually do read more of that stuff. But I, I knew it was going to be hard for me to write because... You know, she would have the witch doing something, then I would have the witch doing something. And then she's like, no, you can't do that. You can't do that in, you know, fantasy. And I'm like, but why not? <laughs> she goes, people won't accept it. I didn't understand. So the, the idea of rules again. Yeah, there, yeah. there were so there were, and I found that there weren't really any rules in Daisy Dukes and Cowboy Boots, except for, well, 
I wish she was here. She could tell you what that rule was, but we probably can't say that on flight GD. There's certain bodily functions you can't describe in romance. And she learned that when she wrote romance. <laughs> and I learned that the witch cannot just do anything she wants to or it won't be believable. So when we chose uh, Sins of the Sister, I, I said, you know, it was my turn to choose again because whoever starts the paragraph, you know, is the one who chooses. So she chose the first part of Blinked and I had chosen Daisy Dukes and Cowboy Boots. So I, I thought to myself, I'm like, what? Could we both meet in the middle? I know she doesn't want to write another romance. I did not want to write another fantasy. What could we meet in the middle? I said, oh, mystery. Everybody loves mystery, you know? And as I started writing this, she was enthralled. She was thrilled. I think that she, she's got like a skeleton that she dresses up for Easter, for, you know, Christmas. Her skelly is always there. And me, I was a little like, ooh, I don't know if I can write this. <laughs> because I wasn't sure that I could put my mind in such an, a place where he is so evil. And really some of the worst things he does in the book, I think I'm the one who wrote some of those. <laughs> so I was going to ask uh, who does what? How do, you, how do you decide who does what? And, and again, this is psycho killer. This is, this, the rules of the game, because there are rules to co-writing as well, or at least rules for our co-writing. Um, whoever starts the book, they, they get to choose the genre. Uh, and they get to choose a few of the rules. Like Blinked, uh, she said there could only be four point of views. We only have characters, uh, four characters that have POVs. And they start at the heading of each story, Mindy, Jim, you know, the witch and the brownie. Those are the only four points of view. That was her rules. Uh, and she got to choose all the names for that one for whatever reason, hmm, for those characters. And then the other thing was that no more than 2,000 words at a time. That was our max. Generally, we write about 1,000 words and then she'll write 1,000 words and I write 1,000 words. And there are times in the books that we can't tell who wrote what because we just blended it so well. By the time it goes through editing and I've edited some of hers and she's edited some of mine, we we don't know who, well, sometimes we do, but not all the time. I'm Sometimes I'm curious. I'm like, we should edit this, but did I write this or did you write this? So don't be offended because I don't know who wrote it. <laughs> because when I, when I started reading this, honestly, I was looking for that disconnect in voices oh, good. and I haven't found it. There, oh, there is no disconnect good. in voices. The, the best thing for an author that can ever happen. And again, my friend who plays a guitar, Salvatore, he was, uh, he sent me a text the other day and it had, he had just finished reading the book and he sent me a, um, a quote from my own book, from, from the Zari Reed book. And it was my own quote though. He knew that it was me who said it. And it's kind of a reflection of Einstein. I, I wish I had the quote here in front of me because I, I don't, I wasn't prepared for that, but it was talking about how some friends you keep. And uh, that life, life is like a river and that some friends you keep and some, you know, friends kind of slide back into the eddies and you leave them behind and all you have left is the, the memories of your friendship. And he, he typed out that entire thing in a text message and then he sent it to me. And I'm like, he gets me, my best friend, he gets me. <laughs> well, I, I'm, like I said, I'm pretty impressed so far and I'm really interested to see how this one's going to end. So you've got this psycho killer. And he definitely has mother issues. Yes. And so the inspiration for that, I mean, are we talking Alfred Hitchcock's psycho here? Because he, would, <laughs> you know, there are even times when the way he says mother. <laughs> you know, I didn't see Psycho till probably about 10 years ago, and I have not seen it since. Um, I thought it was great, but I remember thinking it was so much different than what I guess people the the legend of it is it was just such a different you know movie to what the the legend of all those little clip scenes that you see that's not really the story no this is this is one of those things too i i do mainly read a lot of romantic stuff i read a little bit of everything these days but i guess my mind usually goes back to romance so when we were writing this i had to dig deep and this was kind of things that came uh, actually zoe introduced him and uh, we were going from the sex trafficking angle in the beginning. And the book, actually, as I kind of jump around here, the book came from me being in Austin at a place where someone drugged my drink. And later on, I, I told my friends, somebody drugged my drink. You know, I'm, I'm very sick. We have to leave here. And luckily, I was with enough people to leave. But a few months later, a few weeks later, we went to the same bar. And uh, I got it the same drink. And my friend, she goes, oh, my gosh, I love champagne. I'm like, oh, here, well, you can have mine. I'll get another one. And it was a bar close time again. And so I never got my other one because she got deathly, deathly ill. And it clicked. It's the bartender. The bartender is the one who's doing this. And um, later on, about 10 years later, they closed down that bar. And they said that it was for sex trafficking. It was on the news. I saw it. So I knew that at that point, I hadn't imagined it. She hadn't imagined it. And then nobody would believe us. We told several people at the time. They're like, oh, you just drank too much. 
you know. <laughs> so that is what I thought about when we sat down and we, we wrote this. And I think that's probably that made my gut a little nervous when I started writing it because there was a little bit of truth to it. Yeah, it, it feels very real. And so you, you've got twin sisters yes. and the, the main character is feeling what the, her abducted twin is feeling. Uh, how much research did you do into twin psychology and or psychos? Probably not enough. <laughs> uh, a lot of it's imagination, probably just experience over the years with siblings and stuff. I, I didn't have a twin. Uh, but my older sister and I were the kind that would pick up the phone and the other one would already be on the line. You know, I'm going to call her or that, you know, we, we had a, a little bit of that psychic connection. We one time made a homemade Ouija board. We burned it the next day. We got rid of it. It was too, it was too much. We were a little afraid of it. We did, we used Google when we needed things. Um, and I think I probably had to do more research for finding that cover, um, finding the right cover than I had to find for anything else. Our, our publisher, Black Opal Books, is wonderful for letting us do so many things. And I just like doing that. And Zoe was the one who found this actual picture. And it was a photo. And I turned it into art using one of those little apps. And I, now I love it. I love the, the black and white and the red. It kind of reminds me of, you know, some sort of um, pulp fiction, you know, look. It's striking. It's absolutely striking. But we we uh, we have to do research in weird ways, you know. Uh, sometimes I'm looking at uh, like she's stuck in the trunk. I'm not giving anything away to say. In the beginning of this book, she's stuck in the back of the trunk, and uh, then it was brought up. Well, there's a latch in the trunk nowadays. So what model car was it, and what year? Because so we had to start looking at those sort of details, and and of course, you know, when you're gonna roofie somebody, you have to know what kind of drugs those are. And uh, oh, I said okay, so she's in the back of the trunk. And how is she going to get out? Well, my, my friend had to do a whole bunch of talking to a police officer to find out about uh, how she could get out of uh, Ziploc handcuffs if she was in the, the trunk of a car. And she's been in the trunk of a car. I, I was like, who's been in the trunk of a car? How could you know this? She's like, oh, yeah, we used to go to the movie theater. We'd all get in the trunk. And I'm like, what? <laughs> she's in that. I kind of wish she was here. And, and the, the main character, she's a bit of a troublemaker, too. He is. Yeah, there are, there's a lot of angst going on. I wasn't sure what I thought about some of these moments of angst, but there's a reason behind it. So when you read the, the novel, and she's only 23. I mean, I remember being kind of a punk, immature kid too at 23. I didn't really find myself till more my late, you know, my, find control over my emotions till my late 20s. <laughs> so there's a lot of angst. And you said you weren't sure how you, how you felt about that. Which writer did the angst come from? Was it more you or was it more... <laughs> It didn't come from me. <laughs> um, that definitely came from Zoe. She's a little, uh, she's a little bit of a tough, she's, she's very quiet. She's one of those people that she's kind of shy and quiet when you meet her. But if you know her, you know that inside she's like, <laughs> I'll get you my pretty. <laughs> I think that you, you have kind of a yin and yang thing going on there with your writing and somehow yeah. it, it all is meshing very well. I'll say that so far. Yeah, well, we, we've not written a whole bunch more recently just because of life events. I had my house taken away by Harvey, and that took a year and a half to get over, and just now getting past that, and then my mom's had some complications recently, so that's kind of put a few things on hold. Um, but, you know, it's life. That's that's what happens. And so um, she's been writing more on her own books right now. Uh, she's got a series, Kilts and Catnip, just came out in January. January or February. Uh, I was in Kirkus Magazine. Actually, since the sister was in Kirkus Magazine, so we're very proud of that. And um, uh, she's got a, another series about familiars, which I can't wait to read. She won't let you read it yet, though. There's a lady who's got a couple cats, and they talk to her. I love when they talk to cats. <laughs> and so speaking of that, you have so many pets, and you told us about that at the beginning of the show. Are you going to write a children's book? Are there children's books in your future? You know, because I've only been a child and I haven't had child, <laughs> I'm not sure if I'd be qualified for that. But I actually have written a few things that I thought were really cute. And I just haven't, I haven't ever gone that route. I've been told it's a very difficult, you know, you have to get an illustrator and people who want to publish children's books. And I've never really looked into um, that avenue. However, I have a romance planned. Uh, I've just been super busy lately because I've finished this cute little romance that's very uh, humorous and set here in Magnolia, Texas. I just finished that one, but I, the next one I do want to start is about a, a lady who inherits a parrot from her grandmother, and it's a sassy parrot who does uh, socially unacceptable things when people come around, <laughs> because that's what mine does. <laughs> so you'll use your parrot in a romantic comedy? 
Yes, it'll be a romantic comedy for sure. She wow. is something else. With a woman of a certain age? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, the, the one I just finished was supposed to be a romance of a woman who was supposed to be in her 50s. And I chickened out, I have to admit, I chickened out. Um, I ended up making her 40 in the end because although there's a, I think there's a cry for it. I think there's a calling for it. I think there's a, with the baby boomers and stuff, I think there's people who don't want to read about a 20 year old romance. I know I, I don't, I don't want to read about somebody who's 16. Yeah. In fact, Allie was supposed to be older, but I just, I, I couldn't make her older than 36. It just kind of, you know, like I'm worried people won't read it if I write it too, you know, too much of a, an older age. I really should. Um, the, the parrot will definitely be from the, the grandmother who passes, so it'll be from an older lady, but apparently she's going to have this older, sassy grandma because uh, my parrot's favorite word is shut up. <laughs> and she'll sometimes come out of her cage in the morning and she looks at me and she'll be like, shut up. <laughs> well, you, you really should do this. I just returned from Denver Pop Culture Con. And I saw all the pictures. I've got to go next year. You looked like you had so much fun. Oh, it was a blast. You're on a high for three solid days. Well, you set up on the first day, and then you have three solid days of just constant interaction with people dressed in wild costumes, and they're all so excited and so happy and so open to looking at your books. It's just an amazing experience, and I got to uh, moderate several author panels with people who are more famous than I am. <laughs> well, you're really good at this. That was that was what sold me. Is that I said, you know, I've got to get in touch with her because uh, you interviewed my friend uh, Sarah Lynn Richard, Murder in the One Percent. Yes, and, uh, Keith Steinbaum. Uh, you say goodbye. I've not read that yet, but I, it's on my list. It's on my list. I want to read that uh, one. Read it. I mean, the, what what amazed me is that I'm just one. You're just one of so many creative authors out there, and we're not competing with one another. We're no, that's the great thing about this industry. I've been in some industries before where there's a lot of backstabbing. <laughs> you know, if you're a woman and you're trying to, you know, get ahead in the, this world or whatever, there are five others who want to pull you back down so that they can get there first and then nobody gets ahead. Um, this is one of those genres uh, or those uh, careers that people actually do. They're like, hey, meet my friend. She just wrote this, you know, and, and because I think the more we know how hard it is. It's really hard. I thought writing the story was the hard part. No, that's that's actually the fun part. It's everything that you do afterwards. And sometimes I ask myself, I'm like, why don't I just write for myself and just forget all this other stuff that goes along with it? Because it's a, it's a lot of work. And it's a lot of work. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would not have a social media account at all. Like I never had Facebook, Twitter, anything until I was published. I I, I refused to. And now, of course, you have to sign a contract saying that you will. And you know, so I just use my pets as my my getaway car. <laughs> There you go. Yes. Uh, authors out there, writers out there, wannabe authors out there. You have to have your author platform. And that means that you you kind of have to be all over social media. People have to find you, right? And the more you want to support your your team members, but I, I feel like authors are kind of all on the same team, the more things you have to read. And so then only your free time. <laughs> and, and back I got to back this high next to my bed of all the to the be reds and the half reds. And I've got to get back to that one. And um, Time. We need many, many, many reincarnated lives to read everything that we want to read. But back to the idea of uh, the romance for baby boomers. There's definitely an, a niche for that. And there were a lot of romance writers at the Denver Pop Culture Con. And again, even even if we're all writing romance, and I haven't done it yet, so maybe that's my next book, but we, we all have a different voice and we're all going to have a different feel. Yeah. And like you're going to bring so many other things into your romance to make it unique. We all have different brains, which is amazing. So again, I, I love the fact that we can support one another. So talking about supporting one another, who are your shout outs? Who do you want to give shout outs to? For oh, your of course, to my, my writing partner, Zoe Tazia. She, I'm sure she's at home, like getting way ahead of me today, writing all her novels. <laughs> uh, to my hubby, who I love, gorgeous. And uh, to all my friends and family, thanks for tuning in and watching this. I'm sure that they will. They're my support and I love them. And of course, Black Opal Books. Yeah, as you put that in the camera, I'm like, what? oh yeah, am I publisher? That's your publisher. <laughs> so how do people find you? I'm uh, pretty much everywhere. You know, the Facebook, it's Minute Lauren, and also Zari Reed, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Also, um, I have my, I've got Minute Lauren YouTube channel, although I don't post to it very often, but you can see my parents there. <laughs> I'm going to go check that out right away. We have our website too, www.netlauren.com and www.zariread.com. Really easy stuff. We're on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Smashwords, Gobo, anywhere fine books can be sold. 
That practice that? <laughs> you've you got that. You've got that down. You've got your author platform squared away. So, do you ever eat toast with your parents in the morning? Oh, you know, my parents actually—if you make toast, they can smell it. And if you don't give them the toast, you're going to hear about it. And the calls are really loud. I try to stress that the people who are interested in birds very loud. Yes, I like peach preserves. You like and peach? You have never you? told us yours, have you? I mean, I, I listened to the other ones and I didn't hear yours. What's your favorite? Well, well, first of all, does your macaw like peach preserves? Uh, you know, I put honey on hers. I've not put peach on hers. I've been on Atkins for a year, so I've had her for over a year now, probably about the time I went on Atkins. And so poor thing, no, she hasn't had any. <laughs> oh, and, and thank you for asking. No one's ever asked me that before. Probably because my father liked it. And again, I'm from Boston, so I'm going to say that I like marmalade. It's marmalade <laughs> when you're from Boston. And I didn't like it when I was little because it, it had like a zing. It wasn't just sweet. But I like kind of the, yeah, the, uh, yeah. the zingy marmalade. Well, Manette Lauren, this was a pleasure. I am looking forward to reading all the rest of your books in this lifetime, possibly my <laughs> Thank you. That means a lot. <laughs> and um, yeah, go play with your animals. Will do. Uh, it's got a big day with mom and my little sister today. So the animals will have the, do the dog and bird nanny here to, to play with them. So they'll be taken care of. But yeah, I, I get to enjoy them all the other days I'm home. All right. My, my best wishes for awesome luck for you in the future. Thanks Thank for visiting. You. Thank you. Bye, Minute. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com, where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.